0: All right, grab your Bible out. If, we, if you're new here, we are heading into John's Gospel, as you just heard read. Uh, this is one of the four biographies of Jesus, or biographies are the closest sort of genre we've got to this. And uh, it's, um, we're right at the start. We're just sort of starting to get to know who Jesus is. And in fact, this is the very first action in which Jesus actually appears. So we're just getting to know him and finding out who are the characters in the book. So you've come at a very good point in time. How about I quickly pray that I'll do a good job of unpacking this. Heavenly Father, we just ask that, that you would help us all uh, by your spirit to hear you speak through this word, that we would, you'd keep our eyes on your scriptures and, and, and that we would hear you speaking and that, Lord, we might in our hearts come to understand how great Jesus is and, Lord, that we might be blessed by that, that we might hear well, that I might speak truly and that you might teach us, teach us to love him more. Teach us to have a greater confidence than what we had before we walked in here. We ask that in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right, now John starts the action of his gospel off here, but he doesn't start without telling us what he's doing. You see, the question that this story is the answer to is the question, what is the testimony of John the Baptist? Now, that's probably not, doesn't mean much to you, but for the people around back then, for people who knew who John the Baptist was, for people who realized this guy was a big guy in the scene... This kind of matters, if you think about it. If you're, if you, uh, if you sort of uh, are getting into a, an area, maybe you're uh, thinking about astrophysics or the beginning of the universe, and you want to know whether someone who's coming up to you and telling you, "Hey, hey, hey, here's all these things," knows what they're talking about. Well, then you might. You might go and talk to someone who you know who is a big fish in that field. I would call up my friend Luke, who's written a book on astrophysics, if I wanted to know, hey, someone said this about the creation of stars and all that sort of stuff. Is this true? And Luke Barnes can tell me, yeah, no, that guy's got no idea what he's talking about. Or he can say, hey, listen to him. You seen the number of papers that guy's published? I'm like, I know, because I don't know anything about astrophysics. He has listened to him. John is a big guy. And everyone knew he was from God. And at the start of verse 18, we get the question to which the passage is the answer. Sorry, verse 19. This is the testimony of John. And then story reaches its climax down in verse 32. He hits it again so we don't miss what's happening. John gave then this testimony. And in case that's not clear enough, the author then records the words on John the Baptist lips himself, I have seen and I testify that. Okay. John the Baptist is God's first expert witness in this scripture. Now, why do you call witnesses for their testimony? It's because you're trying to prove a case. It's because you're trying to prove something is true. And what case is John pressing here? What does he want to get you to believe? I'm not going to give it away too early, but I want you to keep that thought in mind. What case is he trying to make? Now, As events start, it's clear that John's created a stir with his activity because the religious authorities have begun to take notice and they want to know what's up. If you can go out to the wilderness, the definition of that if you look in a sort of Greek dictionary is place where no one lives, right? If you can go to a place where no one lives and lots of people come out to you, so many people, that other people have to come out to you too to find out what's going on because it's such a big movement in a place where no one is, then you know you have started something big, right? Something is happening that is worth checking out. And so they've got there. They've got multiple groups represented here. Priests, Levites, later on Pharisees, and they all want to know what is John about? And unlike Jesus, John has no problem telling everyone who he is. He's straight up, yep, I am not the Messiah. Insert your favourite Monty Python joke here. Right. Not the anointed one to come, okay? Now, remember... The anointed one to come, tell me, where is there a passage in the Old Testament that says, the anointed one to come will save everyone from everything? Do you know the verse? Sort of doesn't quite exist, does it? What had happened was, there was a large number of texts, a large number of predictions of someone who would come. Are they all the same person? Are they all different people? Some of them were, it was the king who would do it, who is an anointed one. Some of them was, this, we've got this great priest or we've got this great prophet, and they sort of get anointed sometimes. Do we have multiple messiahs? Do we have one messiah? Who is this? But by the time John the Baptist has rocked up, everyone has got this idea, the Romans are here. We're supposed to be being blessed by God as God's nation. We are not being blessed. We are being oppressed. And we want someone. To come and change it. We want to return to God's blessing. And so that's the question. That's the first one. The first one is hey, are you the Messiah? We want to know if we're going to have a revolution. I want to know if I need to go buy swords. It's worth knowing when a guy is having a big following what political implications it's going to have. Right, okay, not the anointed one. Well, who then? Elijah? Nope. Prophet? Nope, not him either. John's just straight up. There's no, no, no mystery about him. And why are they asking him? Well, they really want to know. They've got to know this, this historical sort of... Sorry, um, they've got to know politically what he's up to. But then secondly, why are they asking him about these particular figures? Like, why are they trying to identify John with someone from the past, you know, like you don't, you don't come up to someone, a new kid who's you know, doing really well in the AFL, and say, are you, are you the next Tony Lockett? Well, you might if you're in the media and you want to blow up a story, but, but he's going to be like, No, I'm John Smith or whatever his name is. He's not looking to be mystically a rebirth of another person. But these guys live in an enchanted world, remember? Remember? It's a world that's where it's, it's, its history and its direction is set by words from God, by prophecy. They know that their world is going to be shaped by what God says is going to happen. And so they take prophecy seriously. Now, has any, have any of you guys heard of the Dead Sea Scrolls? Dead Sea Scrolls, heard a few? Okay, a few people heard of that. In a, in a cave at a place called Qumran, archaeologists found this trove of ancient Jewish and other religious texts preserved in sealed clay jars and they became known as the Dead Sea Scrolls. It seems that there had been a religious community living out there, possibly a group known as the Essenes, Some scholars even think John the Baptist was an Essene because this place is a long way at whoop whoop and John was a little bit similar to them in some ways. But one of the scrolls that they found there has this line in it. Blah, 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 until the coming of a prophet and the messiahs of Aaron and of Israel until the coming of a prophet and the coming of the messiahs, two messiahs, messiah of Aaron and the messiah of Israel. So the the Essenes, they at least weren't just looking for one messiah, they were looking for two. A priestly one, the one of Aaron, because Aaron was the first high priest Israel ever had, so that, that means a priestly messiah and a political one. But along with them, they're also expecting a prophet. All these expectations that the past would determine the future. Now, why? Well, why were they looking for a prophet? Because Moses predicted it. Now, if you don't know who Moses is, so there's a little bit of history, but Moses was the guy. He was the great action hero of the Jewish nation. Abraham, Abraham was the great granddaddy, but Moses was the man. He was the action hero. He led them out of slavery in Egypt, gave them God's law on Mount Sinai, and led them to the promised land. Now, as he did that, gets to the end of his life, end of his great action story, just about to take them into the promised land, and Moses gives his last sermons to them. And that's the book of Deuteronomy. Okay, book of Jeremiah, Moses' last sermons to Israel before they enter the land. And Moses tells them in uh, chapter 18, verse 15, that one day God will raise up another prophet like him. And you are going to need to listen to this guy when he comes. Right, now if, if John, now given Moses' resume, he's the man, right? Everyone wants to be like Moses. If John had said, yes, I'm the prophet, that would have set up some serious expectations for him. Now, that's not the only prediction that's casting its shadow over the first century. Because remember, they also asked him, are you Elijah? Now, in the very last words of the Old Testament, if you open up your Bible to Matthew, then flick back to John... Sorry, flick... You flick back to Malachi, so go one page back, you will get the last words of the Old Testament. And here, in those words... God says that he'll send an old favourite to speak to Israel again. He'll send Elijah. And his job was to turn the people's hearts, which is exactly what John was doing. He says, I'll send Elijah before you to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the hearts of children to their fathers. And that's what John was doing. He was preaching a baptism of repentance, a baptism of changing your heart. So you can see how John fits the bill for Elijah. In fact, you can understand why they asked, are you him? Because you're all this weird guy. Elijah was out in the wilderness wearing weird clothes. John wore weird clothes. And and, and out in the desert and making a stir. Maybe you're him. Spiritual expectation. If you get nothing else from all of those prophecies and all those different people, get this. Spiritual expectation is thick in the air. And people are looking for a Messiah. A hundred years earlier, um, the Hasmonean dynasty, they, they had attempted a revolt that ended very, very badly. And then 30 to 40 years after Jesus, there'll be two more revolts and they end very badly too. But something in that period is going on. They're expecting something to happen. They want change. They can taste it. And so when John seems to be starting this significant moment movement, they want to know if he's going to be the one. Is he going to lead the revolution? We've got to know who he is. Is he crazy and we can just ignore him? Is he crazy and we need to shut him up? Is he crazy and we need to put him down before the Romans come and put us all down? But John says no to every category that gets thrown at him. Christ, Prophet Elijah, he's not willing to be identified as any one of those. But the Jews will not be pushed aside. They're good underlings. They've They've got to have something to say when they go back to Jerusalem. What do you say about yourself, then they ask? Now, one of the things I find interesting there is they almost give they give it away what they really want. They don't think of John as authoritative and they're going to ask him who he is and believe him. They want to know, who the heck do you think you are? And then we'll make a judgment. See, who do you say you are? Who do you think you are? And John's answer is kind of neat because it's almost a trick. He says... I am a voice shouting in the wilderness, make straight the way of the Lord. It's a quote from Isaiah 40. And it's interesting because, well, almost exactly the same quote is just one chapter earlier in Malachi for the messenger who was going to be Elijah. I'm I'm not willing to let you think that I'm going to be this Elijah figure, but I am the voice in the wilderness. I'm preparing the way for something. Now, it's worth recognising just how much John downplays himself here. He won't be the Elijah figure, but actually Jesus says he is in the other three Gospels, if you remember, or if you know, if you've read it. But John never seems to be open to making that connection. Don Carson suggests maybe John doesn't think that he's as important as Jesus thinks that he is. But I wonder if he's just so concerned that people get the right person out of the two of them. You know, if he says, oh, I'm I'm the prophet, all these people are going to come to him. But I wonder, he's just saying, no, 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 I, I want to make sure, I'm going to play myself down enough so that you don't look for the wrong guy. It's someone else. See, if you were to ask John to define himself, he tells us he's the one who comes before the one. And when he sees Jesus, what does he say? When John says Jesus, he says, Hey, this guy who's coming after me, well, he was before me. He pre-existed me. And if you go back a back a, you know half a chapter, it's because he pre-existed everything, says John the Gospel writer. See, John is so determined that no one gets the message mixed up. He is so Jesus-focused that his own glory, his own status, his reputation, it's not his priority. He even almost, in a way, gets it wrong. He downplays himself too much that Jesus actually says, no, he was the Elijah to come. Of course he was. Clearly he was. And John's like, oh, no, 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 I don't want to. Jesus is the one you need to focus on. So what we're going to do now is look at what does John say about Jesus? Because you could just say Jesus is awesome. But, you know, Ricky Gervais can say that. You know, Ricky Gervais was is uh, an atheist comic, and you know when one of his comic comic things, he he was raised Church of England, I guess, like every, any sort of you know little boy in England was, and he's, and he goes, says, I know what I know what church is. You go to Sunday school, say Jesus is brilliant. Can I have a cookie now? Like like, and it's as vague as that. But we don't we want we got to be more specific because the funny thing is that yeah, of course, that's the most right thing I think Ricky Gervais has ever said in his life, possibly. Jesus is brilliant, but I want to know why rather than just a blind. Oh yeah, he's. Let's have a look at what John says about Jesus. See, when the Jews asked him, if you're not one of the great prophesied figures, then why do you baptise? John doesn't play himself down. He plays Jesus up. He says, oh, yeah, I baptise with water. Oh, I'm calling people to repentance. I'm preparing, I'm purifying people, but I have got nothing on the one who is to come. I am not fit to lace his boots And you really need to get just how different a category of being this Jesus guy is, says John. I'm not worthy to touch his mucky, dirty sandal because it's better than I am, because it belongs to him. I want you to think about the difference between Jesus and John in that moment. Because if you've got Jesus in your mind as your mate that you chat to and you ask him for good stuff when you need it, but there's no awe. Like if there's no humility, if there's no no wow when you're talking to Jesus, in no sense of thinking about, oh my goodness, he is so much greater, no praise on your tongue, then John the Baptist, I think, would be very concerned for you because I don't think he'd think you knew Jesus very well. See, the next time you're thinking about whether you agree with Jesus on something, remember John's attitude. And you're not John the Baptist. John was not fit to lace his boots. Remember who we're talking to. Royalty, cosmic royalty. If you've put your trust in Jesus, yes, he is your friend. Amen. Never lose that sense that he is your friend. But he is not your average friend. Not just some other human. Even as you grow in your confidence that Jesus is your friend, your wonder that that is true, that someone so much greater than you could be your friend, should be increasing as well. I baptize, says John, because I serve at the pleasure of someone far greater than me. Now, um, Holy Spirit sort of makes a slight appearance, slide appearance here. We don't actually get a, a report of John baptizing Jesus in this. Like, it doesn't actually play it out as if that's what happens in this scene. Um, do you, any of you guys know how the Old, Test, the Old Testament has the Holy Spirit in it? Like, it's a little different to the new, isn't it? When you've got the Old Testament, the Holy Spirit might come upon someone like Samson and all of a sudden he becomes really strong and he's able to do superhuman things or the Holy Spirit might come upon a prophet and enable them to, to testify and to speak God's word. Um, but it's sort of sporadic and specific. Uh, it's not for the every man. But here, John notes something different. Here, the Holy Spirit comes down on Jesus and it remains. Pardon me. And it remains. It abides in, a, in an older translation. Did you notice that? It remains on him. And John says, this is the one who will baptize with it, baptize people in it. It's not only that all of a sudden it is empowering him, but he is the one who is able to send it. In the same way that I can send water out of a bucket onto the fire last night to try and make it sort of like not, you know, burn down the bushes nearby our house with significant side effects, lots of just splashing back in my face and, you know, dust cloud because I wasn't as careful as I should have been. This human man, just, you know, Jesus from Nazareth, that John identified, and when he saw him, he saw Jesus, that man, come to him, he will be able to send, to pour out that Holy Spirit onto others with significant side effects, a lot less soot, but just the significant side effects. Changed lives. Have you ever wanted to be close with God, to have him live with you, and to have your life changed by him? Well, if you do, then understand John's testimony here is that you have to go to Jesus for that. He is the one who has the authority to send the Holy Spirit into our hearts. And he will. They work together. They are together. Jesus is from God, was with God, came to earth. The Holy Spirit is in Jesus. He sends him. These three are connected, and it is to Jesus we go, and he sends the Spirit to us. Now, this is huge. The Holy Spirit's hardly a second-rate entity in the universe here. And John 14 to 16 later on discusses how it's, it's even better for them if Jesus sends this one. Jesus, the Great One who sends the Spirit, says, it's even better for you than in me hanging around with you in person, than I go and the Holy Spirit live inside you. Do you feel more privileged than the disciples? In the pre-Holy Spirit stages? According to Jesus, you are. You have a greater intimacy with the Holy Spirit than with any other member of the Trinity and a greater intimacy with him because he lives inside you and understands every element of you than they even had with the the walking and talking Jesus. The Holy Spirit lives in Christians. Through his connection with Jesus, unites us with Christ, who is in and with the Father. And Jesus is the one who sends him. So... We get to the end of that day, and the next day, Jesus actually rocks up. So the Pharisees, those guys, um, they've had, he's had their encounter with them, and then Jesus himself comes, and John actually sees Jesus. Now, this is actually his cousin, little cousin, remember? But this is John's moment to do his job. And you can imagine, this is the moment. Like, like John's like, when, when I see the one, my whole job is to get people ready to follow him. Right? So this is his gig. This is like, don't mess it up. You've got one job. Literally, John has one job. And this is the moment. He must be desperate to make sure that all his disciples know the main thing that there is to know about Jesus. And what's he going to say when it's the one, this one job? What's he going to say? This is the thing you need to know about Jesus, that he's a powerful Christ, that he's a refining fire. I mean, John said all those things about Jesus, but in this moment, what does he say? What's the one thing you've got to know? That he's the one who's so powerful he could smudge, squash you like a bug because he's the guy who created you in the first place. What does he say? He's overcome and he says, look, there's the Lamb of God that will be sacrificed. He's a sacrificial lamb So that guy is. Jesus is the lamb that you put your hands on. The, the significance here is the lamb that you bring to the temple because you're going to sacrifice it, and you put your hands on it as if, as if metaphorically to place all of your wrongdoing on it, take it off your shoulders and not put it onto it, and then the poor thing gets snotted and you have it for dinner. Jesus is that. But he's going to do it for the whole world. It's interesting. When the, when the New Testament authors quote the Old Testament, uh, they're, they're always just about trying to, to get you to remember the rest of the passage. So they'll quote one verse, but it's almost, uh, most of the time, either the verse before or the verse afterwards, that almost like is the kicker. Um, could you flick to the Isaiah 40? So we read that bit, I'm the, I'm the voice calling in the wilderness. But if we go to verses 1 to 3, the, the, the two verses before that, this is the, the header for that. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem. Now she's in exile. Jerusalem's in exile at this point. This is this is this is when God's just smashed his people completely because they've been so bad and the relationship looks irreparable between them. And he says, Comfort, speak tenderly to her, proclaim to her her hard service has been completed, her sin has been paid for. And then Jesus rocks up and John says that's what he's here to do. He's the Lamb of God. When God rocks up in person, what's, his, what's he going to do? He's going to be the one who cops the punishment for your sin. And your average Jew would feel this. Imagine you've sacrificed a lamb. You felt bad because it's, you know, it's little Stewart or um, you know, Shanks or Curry or something like that. And you, and, and you take the poor little lamb and you, you feel bad that it died for you. And then you see Jesus, Lamb of God. Just stop and take a moment to recognise the inappropriateness of that. Because John's Jesus is the word, the pre-existent creator, the divine logos, the logic from which all causality, quantum physics, moral instincts, beauty, they all come from him and are made for him, and yet he's the one who takes the punishment. He's the designer of humanity and the poor sucker who takes the rap for us having worked against our own design and done evil. John here starts a process that's going to keep coming all through the book of John. Jesus is pulling together more roles from the Old Testament than you can poke a stick at. They came to, they came to John saying, with three categories in the head. Okay, he could either be the Christ, the prophet, or Elijah. That's, that's our... Those are three things that he could be. And and, and, And John says, well, actually, hold on. There's more to be fulfilled than that. There's the suffering servant from Isaiah. And we're going to pick up way more than that as we go through John. There is the life. There is the truth, there is the way, there is the one who is. There, there, there are so many, there is the, the living water. There are so many things from the Bible, so many prophecies from the Old Testament that John is going to pull into you and you're going to think, Jesus, how could you be all those things at once? And John's like, yep, now you're starting to get it. When you're starting to say, oh my goodness, how could he possibly be and do all of those different things? She's like, yep. John's like, yep, now, now the level of wonder is starting to get to where it needs to be to be curious enough to start to get what Jesus does. He is a, he's, like a, he's like a jewel that when you think you can see everything about him, you really can't. There's all the different facets you have to explore. Now, how does John finish? Well, he finishes with this almost like a defense of his testimony, but he's, he's not really defensive. He, he's excited. You see, John's just a guy. He's a guy who's had a series of very weird events happen in his life that he knows can't be explained in any other way than that this Jesus guy is the Christ. He's the one. And John says, look, I didn't even know who it would be. Like, I didn't know him. He can't mean that he didn't know him. He's his relative. He, of course he knew him. Some people even think that, uh, that he was, uh, like, you know, actually had interactions with and was taught by John earlier on. So he knew who Jesus was. What he means is, I didn't know this guy I was the, the one. What did, all, all I knew. What did I know? All I knew, God told me this thing, right, before I even knew he was the one, is that whoever comes and the Holy Spirit descends on him and remains on him, All I know is that that's the one. And he's the one I've got to make sure everyone knows about. And then I saw it happen. I'm I'm telling you. I saw it, and it's my sworn testimony as a witness. Truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. If there was a Bible that existed right now, I'd put my hand on it to say it, but there isn't one yet. I'm writing it. Now, John the Baptist was dead by the time this book was published. He was dead before Jesus was. So so you think, how can I corroborate the testimony? Well, just go down a couple of verses and you'll see. See, John was dead, but, well, the only reason Peter followed Jesus was because his brother was a disciple of John. Have a look at verse 35 in the next little bit. The next day, John was there again with two of his disciples, and when he saw Jesus passing by, he says, Look, the Lamb of God, when the two disciples heard him say this, they followed Jesus, and you go on down, Andrew, Simon, Peter's brother, was one of the two. You see, the first people started following Jesus because John said to. John, Pete Andrew was there. Andrew was around when this book was going around the ancient world. Peter was around when this book was going around the ancient world. They all could have told you, hold on, did John the Baptist really say that? Like, yeah, I was there. And he saw it happen. This is how it went down. You see, this witness is corroboratable. This is eyewitness testimony with backup eyewitnesses who can vouch for the events that are going on here. John wrote his book so that people would trust that this weird guy, Jesus, from a little place called Nazareth, is really the one that the whole universe is about. Now, that's just a huge claim. And so John, the gospel writer, puts this eyewitness testimony here so that you and I could have a little bit of a better chance of trusting that because it's a big claim. But it's true. Ultimately, that's what the whole book of John is about. It's about about what are your expectations of the Christ that God would send, and when you look at Jesus, is that the one that you see? John's testimony is there so that we would believe it. Now, this is partly why, the fact that there are so many elements to Jesus, they all get pulled together, it's partly why sometimes we don't, God kind of doesn't do what we want him to do. I don't know about you, but sometimes do you think God is more merciful than you want him to be? Because there are some people you're like, no, God needs to kick their butt because it's just not okay that they are doing what they're doing. It's it's so wrong that justice is the most important thing. And then other times don't you think, man, I wish how could God punish people for sin? Because surely she should be un- just understanding. Sometimes maybe you think, how does God let people have so much choice and control? We're so free. It's not like God ever steps in and stops me from doing anything I want to do. I can do whatever I want. And then at other times, some people will say, how could it be that God works everything out for his good plans and purposes? He just makes us like robots, really. Everything's just all predetermined. See, all these things are all fascinating and true at once. And John is starting to pull together all these different things that are all true at once. And until we really get Jesus, we're going to get God wrong on all of these things. He's able to be all of these different things at once. Perfectly tender, perfectly powerful. It's his tenderness that makes his power so perfectly applied and his power that makes his tender friendship and love so very meaningful. This is John the Baptist testimony.